Hey, it's Brian Buford from the Employee Success Center at the University of Louisville. And I love nothing more than helping people find meaning and purpose in their jobs. So join me here to talk about how we can make each day in your workplace a great experience and learn from the stories of amazing people who are leaning into their gifts and talents, all to help you be your best self at work. This is the Employee Success Podcast. Hey, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the first part of our conversation with Dr. Cynthia Ganote about burnout in higher education. It has been an amazing conversation. And in this episode, we're going to jump right back into where we left off. So tune in. Hey, can I ask you about something I read in the book that was really intriguing to me from a staff perspective, and I wonder from, from a faculty's perspective as well, this idea that, you know, we are all human, so we all, whether you're a seasoned faculty member with your PhD or a seasoned staff member who's worked many years, we all want to be liked. Yes. We all want to be loved and liked, mm -hmm. and um, there is, I think, something that also grows up in higher ed is this idea of who do the students love. Mm -hmm. And I, I know among staff, there's a little bit of competitiveness sometimes, like who's, who, who are, who's popular with students? Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. Who's uh -huh. getting, whose uh, office are students hanging out in? Um, is that true? Do faculty, do you think faculty have the sense of like, who's the most popular with students? And is that a contributor? Well, it, it's so funny that you say that because there was someone at, at my past institution where I'm talking about that I experienced burnout, there was someone who was in a role to continually evaluate my performance who would say, Cynthia is very popular with the students. And I would say, I'm a really effective teacher. Like I didn't want to be, for me it was this like, I didn't want want to be seen as it was a as if it were a popularity contest, but instead a I really work at this and I work to connect with them. I work to create a container where yeah. students can learn at incredibly high standards and feel included and feel they have a space to belong and all these things. Yeah. And so I would be in this like I'm doing my highest level of professional work, you know. Three days a week, two days a week, whatever schedule I was on that semester with in the classroom with these students. And I think I was one of those, quote unquote, you know, popular, you know, with students, mm -hmm. people. I kept actually myself resisting that characterization. And did the person keep saying it about me? And sometimes it seemed a little bit passive aggressive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it, on the faculty side, there can be a little like, oh, she's just really popular. Not like she's doing incredibly difficult work or, you know, those kinds of things. And that had right. a weird right. tone to it. Like, I'm not out here telling jokes, I'm <laughs> educating them and trying to help students get connected with the resources they need and all those kinds of things. So right. I don't know how that tr 
how that lands and if there's a a staff um, version of that, like being a little, I don't know, having people turn like a little bit of resentment towards oh, you. Oh, I do. No, uh-huh. I think so. And I think what we're illuminating here is this sense that higher ed, there's a lot of external a lot of the reward, a lot of the um, of our value is external to us. Yes, it's your teaching evaluations, it's your right. research, it's your yeah. you know yeah. how many things you published. Absolutely, it's how many uh, classes you've taught. I mean, mm-hmm. the books. You know, in the book, she says academic culture is steeped in competitiveness, intellectualism, achievement orientation, hierarchy. And evaluativeness, uh-huh. all things that are external to, uh-huh. am I doing? Am I am I doing my best? Do I feel good about my work? It it almost matters more what others think, what students think, what That's colleagues right. think, mm-hmm. what journal editors mm-hmm. think, That's what right. research uh, grant reviewers think, mm-hmm. and feel about us. Then our own sense: Am I living my best life here? Absolutely. You, that's so beautifully put, Brian, and such an important insight. If you asked me in the early years, do you feel every time you're walking into the classroom, you're having a peak experience? I would have said yeah. yes. Absolutely. And actually, even through when I was, I started to go through really difficult times at this institution, my students were always in community in my classroom we had built a learning community we built a community of trust that was always a collaborative beautiful space of meaningful connections and of a a high level of learning as the standard and it not just being intellectual learning but about incorporating um affect and all these kinds of things into the classroom. And so it felt to me meaningful, important, like a peak experience, like I was in just the space I was meant to be in Mm. for that time. And so that internal sense was one thing. I knew, knew, knew I would be evaluated upon every external that you named, often by folks holding the standards you just named that were not my own. I am not. I did not want to be, I don't want to be in a competitive environment that's about um, competing with others to be the best. I don't want to be in an environment where it's just intellectualism without heart and an embodied experience incorporated. I don't want to be in an environment that is, um, if it is so, you know, more coolly intellectual. I am warm, connected, collaborative, and all those things. So those aren't my values. I didn't want to be judged on those. So of course I understood where I was. So if I really think about it, it's amazing For somebody like me to actually attain tenure, I feel really proud of that younger person who was working under standards that, um, you know, this weird dichotomy, working in the way that I felt was 
I'm right where I'm supposed to be with the students. And then in these other ways, evaluated very continually um, against values and standards that I just thought those aren't the right ones for me. These are not correct for me. Right. It's weird. And what you're bringing to my mind, this is maybe a good moment to touch on this those external standards that are unrealistic. You're, of course, that's taking my mind right to marginalized people. Mm-hmm. The, the, the standards that are external to women mm-hmm. that are unreasonable, even more so than they are for men, folks of color, LGBT folks, folks with disabilities. Um, when you're talking about a, a culture where our value is outside of ourselves, mm-hmm. this, that feels like a setup for even more challenge to folks who are marginalized in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And so I always think of it this way. In earlier work of mine, I would talk about how it, the academy was made, it was created for white men of the largely upper class to upper middle class who were at least passing as straight, who, you know, da, 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 da. Those kinds of dominant in every identity category. That's who the academy was made for, both as students and certainly as faculty and staff. So just coming from the faculty position, I would talk about it as So there's a retrofit going on for anybody else. Right. Anybody else. So um, certainly women of all races and ethnicities, folks, anyone who is not white. So certainly BIPOC folks, um, anyone who's a member of the LGBTQ plus community, anyone who has a disability either visible or invisible anyone who you know and anyone who is of a non-traditional age uh any of those things or or of another nation of origin and i think of it metaphorically this way you know sometimes those computer closets or at least they used to be this kind of a computer closet in an office of old and there would be all these machines and wires everywhere and duct tape everywhere it's really just (laughs) held together by duct tape that's how i think about different institutions and how they've actually either created a better retrofit or not now of course there are hbcus and other institutions that were originally built for a population uh in particular that was not white and male, you know, all those things. However, there is a, most institutions are retrofit that I quite seriously think of as put together by duct tape. So in this moment, folks, not only do we know all kinds of things about who holds most of the emotional labor in working with students, both faculty and staff, of color, uh, BIPOC faculty and staff, uh, women members of the 
LGBTQ plus community and those who are uh, non-binary, uh, which is part of that, would be part of that community, of course. Those who are, you know, fill in the blank, it's folks who deeply understand, mm-hmm. not that every member of every person in every community that I just named is like this, but that there are so many folks who have been there, they understand, they know this place wasn't built for them. That's right. And it doesn't work for them like it does the, That's right. the in my world, the, the white male colleague who has a family and has... Um, that's right. You know the the kind of person for whom the it's all green lights. Yes, moving through the path for so many others, it's not. It's it wasn't meant for us, and so these retrofits really aren't there. They're not very good. That's right. So the n plus one gets to be even a wider gap. Mm-hmm. The, the goal is even further away. Mm-hmm. Our dear friend, Marion Vassar, sometimes mm-hmm. says, you know, that when trying to resolve these issues of inclusion, she, we get pointed to the Red Book, which is our, here at UofL, our faculty governance set of policies and procedures, or the mm-hmm. HR procedures. Mm-hmm. And Marion will sometimes say, or, or like, you know, here's the standard. Here's the standard that everyone has to hit mm-hmm. to be successful here at UofL. And Marion will just help us remember sometimes who wrote the standard, who was in the room when the standard was written, who was in the room when the Red Book was created, mostly majority folks. Absolutely. And so it doesn't make, it doesn't work for everybody because it wasn't created by everybody. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And so burnout is an special, especially, Mm -hmm. um, you know, possible proposition for someone who's also trying to overcome you know uh, all these barriers to their success based on identity based on institutional structural oppression mm-hmm. so Cynthia as we think about um, these dynamics for marginalized people talk to me a little bit about imposter syndrome and how that plays a, a factor absolutely so we both know imposter syndrome is something that people talk about so much lately. And you know what drives me a little bit nuts is when people talk about it like it's a psychological thing detached from the broader context. So like it's my shortcoming that I'm constantly thinking that I'm not meeting the mark. Well, Two things are going on. One, when there's an N plus one, where N is what you've actually done, and the plus one is what you're going to be asked about why you didn't do that one extra thing. Um, Imposter syndrome comes very clearly out of, well, you're going to be held to all of these extremely high standards. Your colleagues are all incredibly bright, and you will be told you're not meeting all the marks. And these are people who are used to meeting all the marks, right? So you've got that. And so that's a part of this. You're constantly given feedback of where your gap is, even if it's delivered in a kind voice, which it sometimes is and often is not. 
um, just because it's a it's considered more a, a cool evaluation, not a warm tip about where you might grow usually. Right. There's like a, uh, the elements of a perfect storm here. Both are internal worries or anxiety about not being good enough, mm -hmm. not being as good as the, the folks we see around us. Mm -hmm. But there's also some external um, influences. Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of helping us arrive at that conclusion about ourselves that we're not good enough, that we're an imposter. And especially if there are systemic messages mm -hmm. baked into the structure that say you're less than, you shouldn't be here, um, we, you don't belong, we don't want you here, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you've got it exactly, those intersecting systems of oppression, so systemic racism and white supremacy culture. And then we've got patriarchy and we have heterosexism and ableism and ageism and all the rest. Yeah. When you have those intersecting systems that are within a system that was legitimately built for white men of the upper to upper middle class, at least passing as straight, able-bodied for now, all those kinds of things, you it creates a sense that Actually, this place wasn't meant for all of the rest of us. And so I just often want to couch imposter syndrome in a, I mean, it's not a psychological weakness. It's a literal part of those intersecting systems of oppression that tell folks, you aren't like all the rest. You're not measuring up. The way you do it is different. Read, not just a different way, but inferior within this really hierarchical system and all, just all those systems really clearly say what they think is the right expression of right. scholarship of staff work in whatever arena of you know devaluing emotion and emotional labor even though there's there's a lot of it that's needed in higher ed but then those giving it are not given the supports themselves that is absolutely unpaid and usually unrecognized unrewarded labor so that's we have right. all these pieces interlocking that create of course if you have ever felt imposter syndrome oh my goodness i totally get why that's how these systems work Yes. Well, and our, and, we, and our reaction or our, um, our strategy to overcome it is just to work harder. That's absolutely um, I've right. Got, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to mm -hmm. be the best. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, gosh, there's a, like a famous book called The Best Little Boy in the World about um, the journey of gay men uh -huh. that what we often tried to do to overcome all the homophobia around us was to be the best to never cause a problem, to be the hardest worker, to be the, you know, mm -hmm. um, the citizen of the, the year. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, all that is a recipe for burnout mm -hmm. because we are already maxed out. And now we have to overcome, uh, you know, homophobia, racism, sexism on top of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it makes sense that marginalized people are going to find themselves approaching burnout faster mm -hmm. and maybe more severely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm holding my heart as you tell that story. And I certainly identify with it so clearly as a woman in 
higher ed who I'm very much an embodied teacher and I go with my deep gut and inner knowing about what I believe that students um, need to connect with and I'm reading people's body language and yes. all their nonverbals in class as I'm weaving a dialogue together. These are all things that are highly valued by students, not highly valued by the system in which we are evaluated. And that creates a really weird internal situation. And so trying to just be, be good and, and be better and meet those increasingly unrealistic expectations and all of those kinds of things over time, obviously, will lead to burnout, will lead to illness, will yes. lead to collapse, will lead to yes. any number of ways your body, mind, and spirit might present. But believe me, I became very aware of how my whole system presented when I was giving more than I had to give on a sustained basis. And that does, you can't do that forever. Yes. So I, so let, let's, talk then a little bit here about when you hit that point when mm -hmm. you knew you were there mm -hmm. the crisp yeah <laughs> you were I was, when I was you were crisp. when you were crispy uh-huh mm -hmm. what are, let's let's start to think about how do we dig ourselves out of this tell me about that for you what what were some things that you started to do I needed a number of things because as we've talked about I was so passion-driven in terms of education for students and students getting what they need according to need, yep. equity, um, and students feeling included and having spaces to belong and all those kinds of things. I had to um, first take a pause and get a lot of healing. And so for me, what it looked like was I got a therapist and I was, a friend recommended a hypnotherapist to me. And that was so fab. Oh, oh my word. It's very yes. Berkeley, isn't it? She's a Berkeley hypnotherapist. I was living in Oakland. And so I got my Wonderful. therapist first and that was incredibly powerful. The hypno part of it, just for anyone who's interested, is just like a guided meditation that you do kind of after the talk therapy part. You go into this visualizing from a really deeper place inside you, a place of inner wisdom, if you will, mm -hmm. um, you know, what you actually need, what it is that you know, what Lovely. the part of you that hasn't been touched by trauma knows. And that, for me, was a, an essential part of my healing. I also... I got every kind of, um, I, I got a coach. I started trying things like yoga. I started um, trying to return to things that I know light me up, like going to live music. And I was just trying for a lifeline is really what I was. Yes. I was trying for yes. a lifeline of anything that used to light me up and make me feel like my 
myself because I feel like, as you talked about, you know, as we have been expected to just give of ourselves, I have an image of like giving chunks of yourself away in that process and getting rewarded for it, like incredibly rewarded for being that person. And so I needed to try to reclaim those chunks or even little, little touches of myself Mm -hmm. that I had um, with this process explained for good reason, gotten really disconnected from. And so I went into deep, deep healing mode. What is the thing that you recommend? You've got a Reiki healer. You've got a craniosacral healer. You've got, what do you got? I will try it. That's where I went immediately. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that's powerful. Starting to reconnect to parts of yourself that are not work, that are not your your identity as a faculty member. Same here. Mm -hmm. I started to reconnect with still my noble purpose i think but realizing my my noble purpose wasn't just my job wasn't just what i did here that i have a i have also have a purpose in the rest of my life mm-hmm. i'm going to tell you i don't i don't know this may be a place where our paths diverge as a faculty member and a staff member but as a staff member one of the beautiful things about working in higher education is that um you can make a career shift you can, in fact, every, I always say this to people, every kind of career you could imagine exists on this campus. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be a police officer? Do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to mm-hmm. be a, um, it, it's all here. You can be all of those things. You um, And so I don't know if this is as, as much a, a, a possible remedy for a faculty member, but for me as a staff member, this is hard, even hard to say, but I just reached this point where I thought I've given it all. I've given everything I have and I no longer, you know, I no longer have that energy. I don't have, uh, and so I I started to seek a new position. Mm-hmm. I left mm-hmm. and I left um, joyfully. I left thankfully and I, and I left knowing that someone else will bring something new. There will be a whole new sort of fresh, not crispy, <laughs> crispy person who will bring their love and their energy and it'll be something completely different. And so I've had the, I had the benefit of being able to do that and still stay in my, my UofL family and community. And I'm so thankful. Was it hard to do? It was the hardest thing I ever did. Um, and it took me a while to come out of the other side and realize, like, oh, wait a minute, I'm me again. I'm I I feel like myself again. I'm I'm joyful again. I'm smiling again. My positivity's back. I don't know about faculty though. It's probably not as easy um, an option, is it? No. And I love that you got that option. I'm so happy for you that you had that option. Here is how the faculty role differs. We are told you're the luckiest person in the world to have gotten a tenure track job, certainly to have gotten tenure, my word, in this time where contingent faculty who are made no promises from year to year or very, are in very short contracts without a tenure possibility and often just um, teaching one class at a 
truly poor pay rate with no health insurance. You know, so many colleagues are in those situations that you're taught you're the luckiest person in the world. You should feel amazing about this and you better feel great about it. Well, I felt like a piece of crap. And so you are not as faculty told you could just move around in higher ed. I mean, do you want to do um, alt-ac, you know, alternative academic jobs that are a million different yeah. kinds of things on yeah. a campus? Yeah. Do you want to, just as you said, it, once you, if you shift that way from the faculty perspective and think, you know, I won't, wouldn't be a faculty member anymore, or maybe I would do that and I would teach a class or maybe whatever the configuration is, that's not even, we're not socialized in that way. And so the idea that most people basically say, if you leave this faculty job, especially if you're tenured, if you leave this, you'll never get an academic job again. That is what I was told when I was deciding whether or not to leave. Yes. And I eventually left. Yes. I left my tenured position. Um, and I and what it meant was I left my university. And I started thinking about the difference between me and a really dear friend. And she and I both were really it was a different friend than the one I mentioned earlier. She and I were both really unhappy in this moment at our institution. And I said, um, I got to I gotta figure something else out. I, I cannot keep doing this. Here's what I said for myself. I was like, gosh, I could be a barista. I could I could work in retail. I could do a whole lot of things as I'm figuring this out. And those are lovely jobs in themselves that, you know, people do with meaning. But the way I was saying it to myself was I don't have to be a faculty member to have worth. Right. And what my friend said was, oh my gosh, I can't do anything else. The only thing I've ever done is I've been a server while in grad school and I just can't return to that. And because she couldn't envision other identities for herself or other things she could do, I had an escape hatch. I, was mis I had tenure in a situation where I was quite seriously miserable so a lifetime appointment in a situation where I was miserable was untenable for me. That's a lifetime of misery. I think we <laughs> call that something a like a life sentence. Yes. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good. And I knew that and I knew I needed to reclaim myself. Right. And my friend actually, she may not have been as far along as I was in burnout, um, but she just basically was like, I got to grin and bear it. And um, so... The faculty role feels and appears far more constricting. A lot of people move to communities that they would never have considered living before because that's where they got a tenure track job. They love to live in a city and they go to a small liberal arts college in a tiny town, right. tiny college town, right. all these different things. People land in places and are told they should be thankful for it. And I just finally realized... Um, I actually am going to have to leave this and I, that I wanted to return home to yeah. Louisville. So I didn't have that same flexibility. And then I was, you know, unlike the advice given to me, you'll never get a job in higher ed again. Well, I got something at 
L'Avelle when I came home. I came right. home without a job and found something, and that is also, quote unquote, not done. And so I just did a whole lot of things that were about, I have to save myself and I have to retain, regain my own vitality and personhood because it's, the life has been drained out of me. Yeah. So don't, so I just encourage folks to not necessarily believe the rhetoric. Don't, don't believe, believe it. Don't believe all the myths. Mm-hmm. Also, um, I, I imagine for some of you, you're, you're thinking, does this mean I have to leave my job? If I'm born, if I'm burned out, do I have to leave my job? I don't think so. I think there are, I think this is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think in both of our stories, it has proven to be the right decision yes. for both of us. It may not be the right decision for everyone. Other things you can do, like, like you started to bring into your life other things mm-hmm. that were meaningful and joyful. Mm-hmm. Building your support system, mm-hmm. it, sometimes a component of that burnout is that we're afraid to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. We are not engaging our loved ones and our allies to say, I'm in trouble. Yep. Because uh, folks in academic settings are also set up to uh, always look strong, always look successful, always yeah. look competent. Yeah. And so admitting that to anybody it can be really hard, but could also be the beginning of healing. Absolutely. It's so important, I think, truly to reach out to those you trust and care about. It is getting a lifeline was crucial for me. And I try to, I will say this, I tried to talk about it in spaces like in my department, in other spaces, and that didn't work very well, but but it did with individuals that I trusted. So something happened, and this is just horrific. A really positive uh, acquaintance of mine at work um, jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, mm. and um, he had let very few people know he was re obviously really struggling and at the very same time this tragic event happened a friend of mine had a stroke at about the age of 45 or 6 and it was from chronic stress at work and she attributes it to that and I tried to bring that up in a department retreat and say think we have to address the elephant in the room we there's something really going on and I got tears in my eyes and the person leading the meeting went so on to item number two on the agenda it wasn't even engaged and so I was trying I was really trying to do this kind of let's talk about it and I will say so word of caution about I mean, what we can't control is how other people respond to what we've told them. If you're in a really fragile place, starting with those that you know love you, that you know want to know that you're not doing so well, that you know um, care about you no matter what is crucial because my... Uh, I was doing that, but I also wanted to engage it in this broad way, and that door was closed, but I was already talking to those who I knew loved me 
Uh, so I had a bolstering factor there. But it because of this culture, it won't always be treated with the care, compassion, and loving approach that it, I believe it should be. I think you're absolutely right. And it, it it's hard, you know, when the house is on fire <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and no one will notice. We're, we're just trying to go on with our lives. Um, so I think that's really critical. I want a couple things. If you don't have someone to talk to, mm. contact us at the Employee Success Center. There are resources for faculty and staff. We can help guide you to them. We actively create the kinds of circles you're talking about, Cynthia, where people have your back. Mm. So it could be an employee resource group here. It could be a coaching circle. Um, it could be a mentor. Mm. Maybe maybe you don't have that mentor in your life. And, and so those are all things that we can do here to help you. Reach out to us if you, um, even if you do have other people who love you in your life, and I hope all of you do, I, um, but we want to be part of that support system as well. So there are some, there are resources, there are, there are people who care, um, and it's okay. I think part of it is just recognizing you're not alone in that. I think I've, I thought at the time, I'm, I'm the only person and um, everyone will be so let down if I tell them mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not handling this well. Mm -hmm. Same. Yeah. I, I felt the same. I didn't understand how many were suffering also. Yes. I did not understand that, Brian. And not only does Rebecca Popeart's book highlight the number of narratives, and we know there are so many more out there, of people who have reached burnout, who are struggling. For some, the burnout is in comes out in depression and anxiety. For others, you know, in physical yes. um, ailments that yes. are yes. kind of unexplained, that seem to come from nowhere. That really reminds me of a more senior woman at my past institution pulled me aside in, you know, one of my first two or three years and said, may I big sister you for a moment? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> please. Uh, please. Please do. Please do. <laughs> and she said, you know, I attribute three illnesses to my really participating um, body, mind, and spirit in giving everything in this system that we both regarded as really toxic and she said, I see you, you know, so involved and so, you know, getting out there in all the realms and taking on leadership and working so directly with students and all these different things. And she said, I just want you to know that. And I want you to think about that. I don't want you to land where I have uh, now dealing with these illnesses that I give. She is still with us. Thank goodness. But she has conditions she'll always have for life. I took that as my mantra and said, I don't want to get so sick. I cannot come back from it. So I consider myself today so much healthier, a mm -hmm. much more whole version of myself. And had I just stayed in my own particular case, if I'd stayed in that position, in that kind of culture and all of that, I truly don't believe I'd be talking to you from any kind of healthy 
place. I'd be, I mean, what comes after crispy? You know, it's not, I don't want to visit that. Right, Mm-mm. right. What's, yes. Mm-mm. Well, I'm so glad. Listen, you're, you're also giving me this, I'm trying to think of this um, place to sort of um, summarize here. Mm-hmm. And one thing that just came to me is for those of us who are beyond burnout, mm-hmm. who, are, who, have, who have reconnected to ourselves, our purpose, our, that internal, um, just that internal sense of our value, Y'all, be uh, looking out for your colleagues here. Yes. Look for that big sister somebody. And it's okay to pull someone inside and say, hey, I care about you. I, I see you're exhausted. I see you're stretched to the limit. Um, what can I do to support you and help you find that balance? Right? Don't we need to be oh. that kind of community of care to each other? I really agree. And I want to say the following. If you fear you're overstepping, I mean, the in that case, when you express care, you say, if I'm overstepping and you don't want me to talk with you about this in any way, you just say the word. Yeah. But I want to let you know I've experienced burnout and you are doing so so much I care about you you are so valuable to me as a person as a colleague as a friend whatever you know however you characterize that person it really does matter when people reach out and let you know that they yes care oh yeah truly so many people think they are alone again just because of this culture yes Mm -hmm. and if if someone is white knuckling it as we both did yep. and we're just trying to power through, we may say, please don't talk to me about this right now. I can't handle it. I'm, um, but the offer, yeah. the gesture, the may I big sister you mm-hmm. um, is, is so important. And it will be, you'll be the person they think of when they're finally ready to have that conversation, to start to, to do that healing work. So I agree with you. I think we can always offer with grace and also we can, um, you know, we can be told no with grace Absolutely. and like, it's okay. But hey, if you ever need it, I'm here. I've got uh-huh. your back. I care about you. That's the message I think we often need to give. So Absolutely. Wonderful. I think that's really right. And just knowing it in this deep a system that often does depersonalize, yeah. it makes us feel like, I mean, the, like the system doesn't care about us. And I think the system cannot actually care about us. But individuals within the system, these yes. people that either have become friends or maybe they haven't, they're just really positive work colleagues. We actually do care as humans about each other Humans in this system matter so much, and putting ourselves in the circle of care matters. Yes. I want to harken yes. back to something you said about, you know, the focus is always, as it should be, on the students. How can we educate and care for and provide for the students more and more and more? And the students are crucial, but we deserve to be in that circle of care, staff and faculty as well. We are humans who need care, who have been through something. like the pandemic collectively and then anything we've individually been through as well. We have needs. We are humans. We need care. And so I'm on a mission to 
do a lot of workshops and facilitations and trainings and things about how we offer mindful self-compassion to ourselves and how we create more communities of care within staff and faculty. And I just think the work you're doing at the Employee Success Center is crucial, and I thank you so much for it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being in my circle of care. I mean, I, I really do mean that. Um, thank you for having this conversation. This was, um, I think, really important. And I am really, really grateful. I hope it's going to help a lot of folks. I hope so, Brian. And you are in my circle of care. I thank you so much for it. And I hope that anybody out there who is struggling will do any of the things we recommended, including picking up this book to know they're not alone, unraveling faculty burnout, to seeking an ERG, to just contacting the Employee Success Center going, I don't know what I need. Can we talk for a few and I can figure out what resources or spaces I might belong in? I highly recommend it as you and I sit in front of each other as much more whole versions oh, of ourselves. Yes. And that is a benefit to the world, to our students, to the work that we do, that we are well. It's important. It sure, it sure is. It sure is. Final um, piece of work for you here today mm -hmm. before we let you go, which is our speed round. And because you are a returning guest, mm -hmm. I, we had to write a new one. So this you, is exciting. You get a new set here. Mm -hmm. So you know the you know the drill. You're just going to finish whatever comes to your mind. Don't, yep. don't think about it too much. Yep. Just first, first blush. Uh, if I could meet anyone, past or present, it would be? Bell Hooks. Oh. I sat a couple of weeks ago at Berea College at a little Airbnb where I looked upon Bell Hook's former home until her passing yeah. and thought about her legacy and the influence her writing and her speaking has had on my life, my thinking, my person, and uh, the meaningful work that I do. And so I would love to have a conversation with her. Her passing was recent as it was well. Very, very recent. recent. I believe two Decembers ago. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so until that point, she uh, was alive and well and amongst um, the Berea College faculty where she chose to spend yes. all her last days. Uh, so what a gift. There. Right here in Kentucky. Right here in Kentucky. All about love. Mm -hmm. All about this, the power of love. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, we're positive people, but we, we're going to do one here. Uh, the worst job I ever had. <laughs> I was a temp in Portland, Oregon, in one summer in graduate school. And what we had to do was we had to collect all the fan letters that Ken Griffey Jr. had received <laughs> that he would never see. And we would see these really... Um, tearjerker letters, I would keep a pile that I would want to say to my boss, I mean, could we just get these to him? And the boss said, no, absolutely not. We are to collect these. I mean, basically they went in the rubbish bin and a lot of gifts came in because he had had a child at the time and there were all kinds of beautiful fleece snuggies and things. So uh, once I realized none of that was going to them, I wore that little snap fleece snuggie <laughs> around the office because it was quite chilly. Oh, that sounds awful. It was awful. That sounds awful. Mm -hmm. Advice I would give a new employee at U of L. 
Oh, meet as many people as you can. And if you're an introvert, then maybe be really strategic about meeting some people outside of your department because Mm -hmm. it's wonderful and amazing to have your friends in your department and allies in your department. It's really important, I think, to have those outside your department where you actually can't just talk about the people in your department or that last department meeting or whatever else. And I've met some of my dearest current friends in um, just all across different departments at U of O. That's great Which is filled with wonderful people as both staff and faculty across the university. I'm so lucky to have met so many wonderful people here. It's great advice. Great advice. A strength I don't have but admire in others. I am not the person who is going to have the budget in a, like, every cent and everything all projected (laughs) out perfectly in this vision. My superpowers lie in other arenas. And so I admire those who have those capacities. Yes. And um, it, it is not I. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I may share that with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And finally, my favorite way to be appreciated at work is... Micro-affirmation. So something that I talk about a lot in my workshops are um, ways to micro-affirm somebody. And that may be a graceful act of listening to them when somebody needs to talk. It may be a gesture of inclusion and caring of any sort, or it may be opening a door to opportunity. And so I know how just, it feels so good. I'm a full adult woman who's been working for many, many years and having someone micro affirm feels so wonderful. Just saying any little positive thing or I loved what you said in the meeting or I I read that short essay or whatever it is or I listen to this podcast learning that it meant something to somebody that I connected I think that's what it is it's a it's a critical connection that that lets me know about and it just sets my heart alight yes I love it I love it Dr. Cynthia Ganote I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. The work you're doing is wonderful and important. And I'm so glad that you uh, have reclaimed that sense of wellness, joy, and positivity that is absolutely uniquely you. Thank you so much, my friend. It's been wonderful to talk to you. The Employee Success Podcast is a project of the Employee Success Center at the University of Louisville. Hosted by me, Brian Buford, Executive Director for University Culture and Employee Success. Produced by Laura McDaniels, with support from the whole team at the center, who are all devoted to making your work life a great experience. Learn more about the Employee Success Center at louisville.edu slash employee success. Till next time, thanks friends.